know, there's times where the internet is a terrible place, a dark place, but there's times where you're just kind of grateful for the internet, and just like, wow, if not for the internet, I would not have known that this interaction took place, and I saw a video going around uh, this week, two kids are going around a neighborhood, presumably in some icy Hoth-like place in like Minnesota or North Dakota, and they're asking people in the neighborhood if they can shovel their driveway. And so they go to this woman's house, and they say, hey, can we, can we shovel your driveway? And the woman's like, she looks at her driveway. She's like, yeah, it definitely needs it. Yeah, that'd be great. And so the kids are like, okay, so h- how much? Like, what are, what are the terms? And the woman looks again. She's like, well, how, how's 20 bucks? And they look at each other. These two little boys are probably like 9 or 10. Like, oh, yeah, like $10 each? They kind of look at each other. They're like, okay, okay. And they look at the woman. Like, yeah, that's good. That's good. So they agree to the terms. Then the woman says, hey, listen, I have to run out. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to pay you. I'm going to give you your $20. And then I'm going to go run my errands. And just trust that you'll do it. And so she walks away. Now, all of this is being captured on a ring doorbell. And so as she walks away, the two boys look at each other. They say, $10? We are going to be so, it was bleeping, rich. And they start, like, dancing, like, doing TikTok dances and, like, counting their $10. And it was just this amazing, pure interaction. The woman comes back, and they're like, hello, thank you. Thank you for making us wealthy beyond our wildest dreams. Now, obviously, there's nothing wrong with being grateful, and it would be cool if we were all that grateful. And there's this innocence of children and their cute unawareness of things like inflation. But we all know, watching that, that $10 doesn't go very far and I think for many of us, we, we sort of settle with this kind of interaction with God. Like it starts out with this exuberant surprise. Like, really? We're going to be that rich? And, and, and that only carries us so far. You know, Paul talks about when I was a child, I reasoned, I thought like a child, but now I've been called into deeper things. And today we're going to open the book of Ephesians, and we're going to spend a lot of time there as a church over the next couple of months, and just allowing God to call us into the deeper things that he has for us. You know, Ronald Rollheiser writes on spirituality and, and, and spiritual formation, and he talks about how you can be walking through the most beautiful vista, like you can be surrounded by the glory of nature, as Gerald Mer- uh, Manley Hopkins talks about, the glory of God, like the grandeur of God just completely filling your mind's view, but if you are suffering, if you are carrying around heavy burdens, if you're so locked in on yourself that your world actually shrinks to the size of your own perspective. And for many of us, we allow our own perspective to inform our view of God. But God has invited us into his perspective, and that's where we're going to open up the scriptures today, to see God's perspective as he looks at us, because as much as we could rejoice over $10, you've been called to something so much better. Now, if you read the novel uh, Great Expectations by Charles Dickens, the main character Pip is a poor boy from a poor family, there it is, being raised by his sister and her husband, but Pip eventually comes into a strange and anonymous inheritance. Pip has his own suspicions about who he thinks might be giving him the money, and that dictates the choices that he makes. That dictates the kind of identity that he takes on. Now, I won't ruin the story for you, 
especially if you've read it or were supposed to have told your sophomore English teacher that you read it. But he's trying to live in the new reality of this gift that he has received. And today, we're going to open up the book of Ephesians. And so I, I encourage you, if you have a Bible or you have a phone that, that has the Bible on it, you can turn over there. And I'm excited for the way that we structured this series. This is not typical of uh, our teaching structure, but we've, we've, we've structured it to where we'll linger in this book for quite a while. And I think that's going to be uh, really beautiful for us as a people. You see, you've been called into an inheritance. You've been graced by the love of God. And today we start simply with God trying to crack the seal on our own perspective of our own life and to receive the reality of the life that he has called us into. James Clear wrote a book called Atomic Habits. He talks about the reasons that we all struggle to develop good habits. Now, it would not be a surprise to any of us if, if I were up here and I was saying like, hey, I really want to lose 10 pounds. And you'd be like, hey, uh, have you thought about exercising? Like, really? Exercise, huh? That works? Like, that, that would not be a surprise to us. Or, like, have you thought about not eating the donuts that are out in the hallway? Like, you mean, you mean to lose 10 pounds? I should not eat donuts? Is that what you're saying? Like, when it comes to, like, things that we want to achieve, generally we kind of know the route that we have to take to get there. The disconnect comes when it's something we don't want to do because it turns out that donuts are delicious. And exercise sometimes is like not the first thing on the list. And James Clear writes about this disconnect. Why? When we know the kind of life that we may want, and we even know the way to get there, why do we fail to take on those habits? For instance, if you are a person who smokes cigarettes, you know, we all have this moment where it's like, all right, I'm going to quit smoking. And like somebody offers you a cigarette, hey, you want a cigarette? You're like, no, I'm trying to quit. I'm trying to quit smoking. James Clear talks about that's often how we begin these processes, but what he's saying is that we have to shift our, our paradigm. We have to take on an identity of a person who does not smoke cigarettes. Do you want a cigarette? No, I'm not a smoker, even if you smoke 10 packs a day. You have to begin to reframe your own perspective of your identity. Take on a new identity, and what Clear says, good habits can make rational sense, but if they conflict with your identity, you will fail to put them into action. And what Clear is saying is that our habits actually flow from our identity, not the other way around. And this is why today our text begins by just telling us who we are. And in the scriptural imagination, coming to know who we are is all about what God has done. And so we're going to focus on five verbs today. The verbs are the action elements in a sentence and God is the subject of all of these verbs. We're going to focus on these verbs as a way of seeing what God has done. And in addition, a way of seeing who we are. And so I'm going to put those verbs up on the screen just to kind of give a preview of where we're going. Blessed, chose, destined, bestowed, lavish. And I, I put the Greek up there because it's important for us to remember that these words were written in a different language, in a different culture. And that when we open a book like Ephesians, we are reading other people's mail. And it's good for us to know that. We can't import our own cultural expectations. We have to often get in step with the text and ask the questions that the text, the text is asking. So we're going to be in Ephesians 1. I'm going to read this section for us, and then we'll kind of break it down into smaller parts. Paul writes, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, Grace to you and peace to you from God, our Father, 
and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love. He destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he freely bestowed on us and the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us. Now, here's what I know. As a preacher, if I have a story to tell, all I have to do is follow the rhythm of that story. Like Jesus, this is why he's so brilliant. G.K. Chesterton called him the most brilliant man who ever lived. Because Jesus told stories. Now when we read a text like that, oftentimes, especially in our kind of modern paradigm, our brain like hears all these adjectives and blessings and grace and freedom and liberation. You're just like, okay, I don't really know what's going on here. Especially if you're just hearing it once. Like we, we do kind of get in step with it as we lean into it more. So what I want to do today is just kind of linger on some of these words, because what's going on here is so much more world-shaking than immediately meets the eye. Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Like for many of us, we didn't wake up with this idea that we've been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing. And Paul starts, he, he begins with a well-known Jewish form, a prayer of blessing called a barakah. And Paul is, is leaning into his cultural expectations of what it means to bless and praise God. And this particular prayer of blessing actually runs, from, if you have your Bible open, from verse 3 all the way to verse 14. It's a giant run-on sentence. Paul is preaching here as he begins Ephesians. Now, Ephesians is a little different than so many of the letters of Paul that we have. You know, there's this idea that's often kind of uh, espoused by faithful Christians, that if we could just get back to being the New Testament, like first century church, like everything would be right again. But if you've actually read the Bible, if you read about the first century New Testament church, they were full of problems, right? The reason that we have a New Testament is because these churches in these individual places were not doing everything right. And Paul's like, oh, we've got some corrections to make here. And so Ephesians is different in the sense that it doesn't start from the place of a problem. So Paul opens up the letter and he's just saying, this is who you are because this is what God has done. And notice, as Paul starts to talk about what God has done, it all starts in blessing. Blessing is the beginning. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, I want to unpack that phrase, heavenly places, spiritual blessing, because I think sometimes when we expect God, when, when we're talking about blessings, okay, we're like, okay, these physical blessings or these spiritual blessings. And if we're honest, we see the physical blessings like in our bank account or, you know, around the table or whatever it may be. And the spiritual blessings were like, we have trouble conceptualizing. But what Paul is talking about here is not a distinction between those two things. He's outlining a very specific fact because of what Jesus has done in his cross and his resurrection. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. If you look at Ephesians 1, it says in what, or 1 verse 18, excuse me, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe? According to the working of his great power, God put this work, uh, power to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. 
as a church, as a part of the wider church calendar, we're in a season right now called Eastertide. And Eastertide begins on Easter Sunday, which was last Sunday, and goes for 50 days until Pentecost. And Pentecost celebrates the giving of the Holy Spirit, basically the birthday of the church. And just before Pentecost is this day that's often little regarded called the Ascension. Where the, the apostles, the first ones to see Jesus risen, see Jesus rise to take his seat at the right hand of the Father. And Jesus is not any less present with the church, us right now, than he was with them, even though we can't see him. But he's just present in a different way. He's present in, through the Holy Spirit. And he's here in our midst right now. And we should never take that lightly. The God of the universe is He's walking the aisles right now because he loves us. And he said that wherever two or more are gathered, he is here. But the ascension celebrates the Christian proclamation that right now, contrary to all appearances, Jesus is reigning at the right hand of the Father. That he sits enthroned above all powers and principalities, all that would threaten him because of what he has done on the cross and in his resurrection. Paul in Ephesians uh, chapter 2 verse 6 it says, and he, by grace, has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Paul is making this very incredible point that just as Jesus is now seated at the right hand of the Father, we who are in Christ, which is a phrase that's very important that we're going to talk about in just a minute, are somehow by our faith in him, mysteriously seated as well, right with Jesus at the right hand of the Father. God giving us every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus means that there is resurrection power that has demonstrated its sure and secure victory operating in our lives right now. The power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is in operation in this community, in our lives right now. We are more than conquerors through him. Because of what he has done. Now we, as Paul talks about, we have been blessed by God. We are a people of blessing called to bless. Now, as we've often talked about here at Ecclesia, to be human means that our native tongue, our first language is praise. If you read in the scriptures in Genesis 2, the first words that the ones created in God's image speak are poetry. They're a song of praise. Adam is giving thanks to God. He says, at last, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Adam is giving thanks to God for the creation of Eve. The first words that humans speak in the scriptural story are, are blessing and praise. We did a whole teaching series on blessing back in 2020 because when the world was falling apart, it seemed like a good time to talk about the blessings of God. And from Paul, everything starts in blessing and joyful response to God. And blessing frames the entire story of our salvation. If you look in Genesis 1, God creates the world. And he evaluates it. He blesses it. He says it is good. But he doesn't just bless it with his words. He blesses it with his presence. God makes the world in a way, in such a way that we could draw near to him in it, that he would be present in it. Jesus' ministry begins in blessing. The first words that are spoken over Jesus in the gospel stories are at his baptism. As God cracks the heavens and says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus and everything he does flows from the blessing of God. And the new creation, this world that we're living in, in light of Easter, begins in blessing. The last image 
that the disciples have of Jesus before he ascends to the Father, before that ascension day that we talked about just a minute ago? It says, Luke writes that Jesus lifted his hands and he blessed them. And then he was gone from their sight. Blessing is the thread that is woven throughout the scriptural story. God's fundamental disposition towards our world is blessing. And that is so important for us to remember. And this is where Paul starts in Ephesians 1. And he's simply returning the extravagant blessing of the Lord by blessing the name of the Lord. Now, in this short passage that we read, verses 1 through 8, you see the phrase in Christ or some form of it eight times. And you'll see it if you read Ephesians with the lens of this simple phrase, in Christ or in him, in the beloved, it is everywhere. And this is an invitation to see what Paul is trying to say to us. To be in Christ is to be transferred from a kingdom of darkness to a kingdom of blessing. Paul uses this phrase for a shorthand for all that Jesus has done in his life, his death, and his resurrection. Now, if you know me, if you've been around this church, you will know what I'm about to say is true. I am a huge sports fan, but I am also incredibly reticent to use sports analogies when preaching and teaching. You know why? Because as much as I love sports, many people don't care. Some of my best friends are like, yeah, I don't care about that. But in this scenario, I'm going to ask your, uh, your goodwill because this is the best analogy I could find. In Christ, when we talk about that phrase, in Christ, whatever is true of Jesus is true of us. Now, I don't know how many of you are baseball fans. Uh, there's a, that's a dying breed in our culture. But I, I like baseball. I don't, I don't watch it all the time. But you know, when the playoffs roll around, I pick it up. And my favorite team are the Atlanta Braves, the World Series champions. And that's an interesting thing, being in the Northeast, where the two main rivals are located very proximal to, uh, to where I live. But they're not the winners. They're not the champions. And if you talk to me about the Atlanta Braves, I will say things like, we? As if I had anything to do with winning the World Series? Which is interesting. It's probably some psychological stuff going on there. But if you talk to sports fans in all sorts of ways, they'll, they'll say that kind of stuff. And it's delusional, but it's so true, too. You're like, yeah, we did it. And I will say, like, I care about the Atlanta Braves a lot. If, if the Oklahoma Sooners ever win the College Football National Championship, there will be a sermon on it. <laughs> My wife will disown me, but uh, just, just know. Um, and so all that's to say, when it comes to things like sports, or, you know, you could probably plug in, you know, I don't know. There's, there's probably some other cultures you could tap into here. But we can be represented by the victory and the overcoming of another group of people. We identify our lives with that story. And this is why sports have such an appeal, right? This is why, like, for, for so many of us, these kinds of things have this kind of weight because we're like, that, they represent me in some way. And that's what's going on when we talk about in Christ. In Christ, we say that Jesus and everything that he has done represents me and my story. Clinton Arnold, biblical scholar, said, In Christ is the most important phrase for the letter as a whole. The key for understanding this letter is recognizing that believers have a new identity in Christ. A new self-understanding based on a new reality permeates every aspect of life and transforms individuals. And I just added a little caveat, also transforms communities. To be in Christ 
mysteriously and graciously, as we'll see, is God inviting us to make to, to, to see that it's true for us. Everything that God has for Jesus is true of you. You're seated at, at the right hand of the Father with God. Like, that is mysterious and extravagant, but that is what our God has called us into. We'll go on in Paul's letter, Ephesians 1, verse 4. It says, Just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love, he destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he freely bestowed upon us in the Beloved. Now, in that text, we have three more of the five verbs that we saw. Zechariah, if you don't mind putting those back up. We have chose, destined, and bestowed. Now, if you've spent any time in church, or if you're just kind of prone to, to philosophical thinking, you may see some of the verbs in that section and be like, okay, wait a second, what's going on here? Like, it, it sort of sounds like God's just sort of arbitrarily choosing stuff, like, and when we hear that, we, especially when we hear God choosing, we hear it through the lens of God choosing who's going to be a part of his thing and who's maybe not going to be a part of his thing, right? And especially then we take it like, I think for many of us, our fundamental disposition towards the Bible, we see it like our posture towards it, we see it kind of like, how do you get to heaven and how do you avoid hell? So when we look at it through all those lenses, it, it sounds like, is God just choosing, you know, and I have nothing to do with it? Who gets to go to the good place and who gets to go to the bad place? John Calvin would say that that's exactly what it's saying. He says, if there were no distinction between men, except that some receive God's grace and others refuse it, what could be said but that God has shown himself liberal to all mankind? But St. Paul, to exclude all merit on man's part and to show that all comes from God's pure goodness and grace, says that he has blessed us according to his election of us beforehand. I get what Calvin is trying to do there. He has a high view of God's sovereignty, of grace, and foreknowledge that often dictates certain conclusions on his part. But I just think that in this instance, Calvin is not getting into step with the story that Ephesians is telling. Sure, if Paul were talking about individual responses to the gospel proclaimed about Jesus, we may simply have to accept that this is what's going on here and simply hope for the best. You know, like, none of us ever think we're not the chosen, or maybe, maybe we do. But here, in Ephesians, Paul is not referencing himself and others like him when he's talking. If you notice, in Ephesians thus far, he's been talking in the first person plural. He's been using uh, nouns like we and us. And he's talking in this frame of reference. And he's talking about those who, th who are the first to respond to the gospel story, i.e. Jewish Christians. If you look at the ministry of Jesus, Jesus, throughout his life, doesn't go to every corner of the Roman Empire. He comes specifically to the Jewish people. Now, there are moments where he interacts with people that are outside of that particular lineage. But for the most part, his ministry is directed towards those who are ethnically Jewish. And here's the reason for that. Jesus is trying to demonstrate that he is the fulfillment of the covenants that were given to the Jewish people. Covenants given to Abraham and Isaac and David. Jesus is saying, I am the answer to those promises. But if you look at those promises, places like Genesis 12, the first promise that was given to Abraham was that through God's choosing of Abraham, all the nations in the world would be blessed. And what's going on here? 
And Paul will make this clear in Ephesians 1.13, is Paul has two very distinct groups of people in mind. He's talking in these major groupings from the way that he sees the world. In Ephesians 1, where we are uh, up to verse 12, he's talking about Jewish Christians, the first ones to respond to the gospel. And then in verse 13, he'll say, but you also. And in that instance, he's referencing Gentile Christians. You see, in the book of Acts, slowly but surely, the Spirit unveils the implications for what it means for Jesus to be the Savior of the whole world. And even through the book of Acts, if you read Acts 9 and 10, people don't understand that Jesus' resurrection means that he has revealed himself as Savior for every single nation. Uh, the Holy Spirit appears to Peter and says, go to Cornelius' house. Cornelius is a Gentile. And Peter's like, I don't want to do that. Willie James Jennings says of people in Acts, nobody in Acts is doing what they want to do, which I think is beautiful when the Spirit's working among us. But all I'm saying through all of this is we have to get in step with the story that Paul is actually telling. Now, if we import, if we kind of read these in bite-sized little chunks, oh, it seems like God's just kind of arbitrarily choosing his eternal kickball team, right? And friends, we all know, we know the feeling of not being chosen, of being rejected. Like, live your life long enough, you will be rejected, whether personally, whether professionally, you will find what it feels like to not be chosen. But can you hear me today? Before the foundation of the world, Jesus chose you. Every single one of you. And that's not just because you're here on a Sunday morning. That is true of every person that is outside of this room. Before the foundation of the world, they were chosen in Christ. Because Christ is the elect one. He was always the point. All this pertains to a biblical doctrine called election. And I, I've defined election. Election is God choosing a particular person or people who through their life with God will bless the entire world. We have this image of overflow. That out of that deep well of a life lived with God, your life overflows in blessing to the world around you. Election is the way that God works out his purposes, making covenants. It's so interesting and so baffling that as God works his salvation in the world, he never does it without human partners. Like, wouldn't, if you were advising God, wouldn't you kind of say, hey God, um, the humans keep screwing this up. Perhaps you should just take care of this one on your own. But God doesn't do that. Again, we've talked about this. Why doesn't Jesus just appear in the sky and, you know, once a year to the whole world? Conceivably, he could do that and be like, um, I am the resurrected son of God. You should worship me. But he doesn't do that. Because there must be something intrinsic about the way that the message is conveyed that is intrinsic to the way that God wants us to live in the world is intrinsic to the message itself. Even Jesus, when he comes as God in the flesh, is fully God and fully man. Like that is a stunning truth that God will never leave his covenant partners behind, those made in his image. We have been called with a significant responsibility. You, being chosen in Christ, have been chosen to be a blessing to the world. N.T. Wright says of election, the point of election was not to choose or call a people who would somehow mysteriously escape either the grim entail of Adam's sin or the results it brought in its train. It was not, as in some low-grade proposals, about God simply choosing a people to be his close friends. The point was to choose and call a people through whom the sin of humankind and its results for the whole creation might be brought to the point where they could be at last defeated condemned and overcome 
Paul says that we were chosen in Christ. Christ is the elect one, and we are in Christ. Everything that is true of him is true of us. And Paul says in verse 6 that that choosing means that you were predestined for adoption in love. Now, the, the NRSV splits those up. I, I want to keep those. Here. You were predestined for adoption in love. Now, there are no laws really pertaining to um, adoption in the Old Testament related to the practice of adoption. So it's really natural for us to assume that Paul, using this imagery, is borrowing this language from the Roman cultural world. And under Roman law, an adopted child acquired all of the legal rights of a natural-born child and was released from the control of his natural father. The child also received the adopting parent's family name and a share in the status of the new family. Paul tells us. He tells us the status that we all have because of what Christ has done. We are in Christ. We've been chosen in him. And then he zooms in to the very intimate and personal implications of that status. Friends, you weren't just chosen to be a part of some vague mass as a part of God's people. You were chosen for adoption, to have a relationship with the Father, the maker of heaven and earth, an intimate relationship, a daughter-son relationship. When Christ appears to Mary on that first Easter Sunday morning, he tells her, I am ascending to my father and to your father. And Paul is emphasizing this. He's saying this is the kind of relationship that you've been chosen for. Not just that you would have the right things to say or that you would be on the right side of it all, but that you would truly know God. That you would have a deep experiential knowledge of the God who made you. You were chosen adopted to be an intimate relationship with God. Paul goes on in verse 7. He says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he has lavished upon us. The last word that we look at today, lavished. Now, as Paul describes the revelation of God in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, he can't help but lean upon extravagance. Eugene Peterson says, in matters of God's grace, hyperboles are understatements. Paul uses the term redemption, echoing what happened in the Exodus. And I think for many of us, especially if you're somewhat familiar with the biblical story, even if you've just seen like the Ten Commandments or the Prince of Egypt, like we have this concept of what happened in the Exodus and it has this like visceral epic quality to it. Right? Like there are people that are enslaved in Egypt. And God, through a series of wonder working, liberates them from slavery. And they s escape Egypt. They pillage Egypt. They take treasures of Egypt and they go off into the wilderness. But then Pharaoh changes his mind and he wants to chase after them. And they come to the Red Sea and they look around and they have nowhere to go as this army is pursuing them. And yet God is like, I got this. And he opens a way through the water. The people walk across the water on dry land. They get to the other side. They turn around only to see the waters close in on the pursuing armies of Pharaoh. And as that hush falls over and the roar of the, the sea there, all they can do is erupt in praise. They're like, we are free. And what Paul is saying in using this word redemption is that your liberation in Christ is every bit as visceral 
And again, what we do is we spiritualize this. We're like, oh, you know, I'm spiritually free. But God is saying, no, you've been transferred, as Paul says in Colossians 1, from a kingdom of darkness to a kingdom of light. He has saved you. He has liberated you. That no longer is your life given over to your own desires to sin and to slavery to sin. You have been liberated to live your life transformed by the grace of Jesus. He has lavished this grace upon you. to take account of this beautiful grace that God has given us in these verbs that have, that have shown what God has done and thus who we are. And I think so often, too, we have this sense, like we're like the two kids standing at the door, so excited about $10. There's a, there's a term in Italian cooking, quanta bassa, which basically just means like just enough, just like just as much as you need. And I think our perspective on God's grace is that it's just enough, whatever, whatever is needed for the situation. And like, it's almost the way we read the story. Okay, like God tried the law thing, that didn't work out. So then he was like, okay, plan B, Jesus, like get in there, go, go die for them. But that's not what Paul's saying. He says, before the foundations of the world, you were chosen in Christ. Paul's not saying that God just gives you like the, the, the little measure of grace that you need to get through the day. No, God is rich in grace. He loves to give out his grace. He loves to lavish his grace upon us. God is extravagant. We will never find the end of the storehouses of his goodness, of his gift. Not now and not in eternity. Jesus has lavished his love upon us. As John reflects upon this, he says how great is the love. That the Father has lavished upon us that we would be called the sons and the daughters of God. Paul is trying to craft the small perspective that we often look at the world, look at God through. And saying, this is what God has done. Thus, this is who you are. God has blessed you. He has chosen you. He's bestowed upon you. He's lavished upon you. He's, he destined you. You are his. And in these verbs, God is trying to say, there's an extravagance to this gift. In the book, Les Miserables by uh, Victor Hugo, Jean Valjean is convicted of, he, he's trying to feed his family. His family's starving during the winter and he steals a loaf of bread. And in doing so, he's sentenced to 20 years in the labor camps. And when he finally gets out, he has papers that mark him as an ex-convict so he cannot find work and has trouble finding a place to stay until he comes to the house of Bishop Bienvenu, which means Bishop Welcome. And if I, I, I know the, the, the play and the movie are really strong, but the book, read the book. The bishop in that book is very much like Jesus. And Jean Valjean, for the first time, receives welcome. He receives a meal, and he's so, like, overcome with hunger he, he almost can't contain himself. He just laps the, the food down. And he receives a bed and he reflects. He's like, this is the first time I've slept on a bed with sheets in 20 years. But he also, as he sleeps through the night, he wakes up in the middle of the night. And he, you know, he's tormented by his own circumstances. You know, he's been living his life kind of as a vagrant, like trying to find some solidity. And he remembers the silver that was used for the table. He starts to have the thought, you know, if I just took that silver, I could make a life of my own. I could forge something for myself. I wouldn't have to rely 
upon the extravagant kindness of strangers like this, I could, I could finally be free. And so, in the middle of the night, he goes and he takes the silverware. And in this culture, this silverware was worth a lot, and it would set him up for quite a while. But as he escapes the house a few days later, Jean Valjean is dragged back into the bishop's home, accused of stealing the silver. And they bring Jean Valjean before the bishop, and Jean Valjean is hanging his head. And we've all been in that situation where we just feel caught. We know it's coming. And he expects condemnation, accusation. And as he looks at the bishop, the bishop full of grace, he says, my friend, you forgot to take the candlesticks. The bishop's grace lavished upon him. And in the film version of Les Miserables, the actor who first brought Jean Valjean to life on the stage in London, a man named Colin Wilkinson, was invited to play a role in the film version starring Hugh Jackman. But this time it was not to play the role of Jean Valjean. This time he was invited to play the role of the bishop. And they asked him, what's it like? What's it like switching roles? Colin Wilkinson reflected, you know, after receiving that extravagant race, uh, grace night upon night for 20 years, to be able to give it away is an incredible gift. This is who we're called to be. Recipients of an extravagant grace that changes our whole identity, changes our whole life. It's a scandalous grace. Jean Valjean, yeah, he should have been put back in prison. But because of the grace of the bishop, he was not just set free, he was liberated to live a new life. And the bishop looks at him and says, I buy your soul back from perdition to purchase you for the kingdom of light. We're also meant to be like Colin Wilkinson. We have been blessed with every blessing in the spiritual realm, in the heavenly places. And we're called to walk the world as the cardinal fashion. This is what God has done. So this is who you are. You know, every week we come to this table. And it is the table of Jesus' action. The table where we simply receive. Receive the life that he has given for us. And Jesus, as he sits at a meal with his friends, he takes bread and he breaks it and he says, this is my body broken for you. And he takes a cup and he blesses it and he says, this is my blood poured out for the sins of the world. That as often as we eat, as often as we drink, we receive this new identity that God has lavished upon us. We receive his call to be his children. And we see the world as God intended for it to be, recipients of his grace. So in a moment, we're going to invite you to say, I'm going to go ahead and invite our communion servers. And as you come, I, I want to invite you to just hold on to the elements as you take them. And friends, we practice uh, an open table. If you're new here today, um, you are welcome to this table. You don't have to come, but it is Jesus' invitation. We just get to extend it to you. But let us, as we come to this table, receive the witness of the Holy Spirit. 
that, that is confirming in our hearts that this is not just something that was done for everybody else. It was something that was done for us and you. So let's come to the table this morning. I'm going to pray. And Malvika will show you when to go. Jesus, we... God, we so easily just either minimize and shrink what you've done or just project it that it's for everybody else and not for us. So God, I want to speak just firmly against the idea in here that anybody has not been chosen to be a recipient of this kind of grace, God, this unfathomable grace, the grace that saves us, God, the grace that transforms us. And we have all, because of your son, been chosen in you before the foundations of the world. God, and I also want to speak to those of us who have been trying to forge an identity for ourselves. We have been the the subject of the verbs. The verbs haven't been as beautiful as things like blessing and choosing God, but they've been verbs like striving. trying, God, just to receive. As we come to this table, we bring nothing to it. You have washed us, God. You have made us whole. We simply receive the reality of your body and your blood. We pray and we speak and we step into all of these things in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen.